December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. A young man from a Pennsylvania mill town was part of defending his country while Oahu exploded and burned in the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Years later, and long after his death, his daughter received almost 300 letters between her father and her mother during World War II. The letters helped her get to know her father, but also led her to discover a shocking family secret. Liz Williams joins the show to talk about a story of war, love, and forgiveness on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Liz Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. Excited to hear this story. After that introduction, I can only imagine our listeners are like, shocking secret. We got to get right into it. But before that, we got to set a little bit of context and get to know you a little bit, get to know your father a little bit and set the stage for this story. Uh, and, and so help me with the timeline a little bit here. A kid from a mill town, gritty Pennsylvania, ends up in the Army Air Corps, headed to Hawaii to serve his nation. So can you take me back and just set the stage a little bit for us? My father was from a, a family of very modest means. And of course, we were just coming out of the Depression then. So there weren't a lot of opportunities for people who kind of didn't already have their futures made you know, financially, as it were from privilege, which my father was not. So a lot of kids decided, well, I'll join the military. At least I'll get a paycheck. And my father was in that group. And he decided to enlist rather than wait to be drafted because you could at least choose the branch that you wanted, the posting that you wanted. So that's what he decided to do. So and of course, when he saw the opportunity to go to Hawaii, he thought, oh, well, this is great. Why not? So that's what he did. So all that happens before Pearl Harbor is bombed? Oh, yes. Right? That was and, and July of 1940. And the reason I think he, well, he, he was very well read, my father. He read the papers. And I, there was a pending Selective Service Act that was going to be passed by Congress. So he thought, well, rather than be drafted, I'll go ahead and enlist. So that's the way he was thinking. He's in Hawaii on that fateful day when so many things change for us, uh, change for our nation and, and really change the dynamics of that incredible uh, war and, and, yes. and things sort of get going from there as it surges, as the war surges, he's there that day. He survives that day. He's fighting and defending on that day, but mm -hmm. then things surge and there's this major uptick. What's next for him at that point? You mean after the bombing, after the blitz? Yes, well, yeah, everything changed. I mean, Oahu had been a carefree paradise. You know, I mean, there there was so much to do. There was the beach. There was the downtown Honolulu, which a lot of duty stations aren't nearly, you know, as glamorous as Honolulu. So everything changed. Martial law went into effect. They had curfews. You know, I mean, just everything changed. So... Of course, he remained at Hickam Air Base for two years after the bombing. And I don't have detailed information of his everyday, you know, what he was doing from a, a, on a daily basis. But, you know, he worked in the message center and he worked in communications. He worked mainly teletypes. So he was, he was not an infantryman, but 
communications is pretty important in, in war, and that's the kind of thing that he was doing. And I think that the bombing really kind of shook him up to the extent that very soon after that, he proposed to my mother. And I'll bet you he wasn't alone in, in making such a proposal. I'll bet you a lot of young men, you know, wrote to their their girlfriends and said, hey, let's get married. It, you know, it, it would give them a sense of security and also allow their fiance or girlfriends to get some type of a, an allotment or maybe a pension if something would happen to them. So I'm sure that's how he was thinking then. You see, you see what happens on that day, and you're right. He, he probably gave him time for some perspective and and maybe some, you know, uh, just thinking inside. Like, I, boy, I got to take care of some things here because things are things are escalating here. Does that proposal happen over pen and paper? Yes, it did, and unfortunately, that's one of the letters I don't have. There are about a, I calculated there are about a hundred letters that I'm missing. And I know that because my parents are always right at the beginning of their letters. I received your letter of June 2nd or whatever. So that one was missing. And I think it was probably missing knowing my mother. She probably squirreled it away somewhere and forgot where she put it. And it didn't end up back with the collection. So I didn't get a chance to see that. But yes, he did propose by letter and and she accepted by letter. So that's and actually he ended up sending the ring through the mail, which I don't think today we would we would do. But back then they didn't have many choices. So that's what he did. And she did receive it. If you're listening and you think you start to get a little nervous and anxious when someone doesn't respond to a text message within 30 to 40 minutes, could you imagine penning a letter sending it across the globe. I mean, the country really, I mean, he's in Hawaii, right? Mailing the letter back to Pennsylvania. Yes. Is that where your mother was in Pennsylvania? Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so the letter's got to go there. She's got to receive it. She's got to decide, do I want to go through with this, with this guy, send the letter back. That's an incredible story that a proposal happens that way, but maybe to your point, more common than what we might expect, uh, given, Probably, yes. you know, given uh-huh. the times. So, yeah. so again, He's there that day. Um, the war surges on. He's got his role in it. But clearly, in the early process of this story and, and just chatting with you, that back and forth between them through those letters is strong and rather consistent if you've got in the hundreds of them to be able to go back later in your life and read and review and really study and 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 write a book around called No Ordinary Soldier. And yes. you've written this incredible book centered around those letters. And you wrote that those letters helped him cling to sanity through that uh, because they would share those letters. And then they were later found uh, just in a space in the attic. So how many what was what were the conversations like? I mean, I just want you just sort of, to sort of take it from here. Oh, sure. I'm book. happy to. Tell us the story. <laughs> I like better than talking about my book. Please. Uh, well, it was in 2003. My mother was downsizing. And so I was helping her clean out her house. And she came across the letters and she said, well, do you want these? Well, by that time, I had received my master's degree in American studies. And I said, oh, yeah, I want them. So I I realized it was a treasure trove when I started going through them because, frankly, they were very substantive. Hmm. 
I have read a lot of World War II letters, and a lot of them aren't substantive. A lot of them are just, hey, mom, hi, how you doing? I'm okay. How are things on the farm? You know, just more or less letting uh, the folks at home know that you were okay. But my father had a real need to express himself, and he, he wrote rather well. So he, he talked a lot about the things he was seeing, the things he was observing, what he was going through, his state of mind the morale of, of his colleagues, and just, you know, um, things that he could say. Of course, censorship was in play, so he, there were a lot of things he couldn't say, and he, he, not, and he and others grasped about the censorship a lot. They complained about that, but it was necessary because they, they, they couldn't reveal their locations mm -hmm. or where they were going to go, that sort of thing, so... The military had its had its purpose in in doing that, but they didn't. The GIs didn't like it at all, and so I think my father probably wrote a letter about twice a week, and I know my mother did at least once a week, and sometimes more. And the interesting thing to me was when he started island hopping, when he ended up in places like Tarawa. Well, first, yeah, Tarawa, then Kwajalein, then Saipan. A lot of her letters then started um, not showing up because mm -hmm. I think it was just too hard for him to hang on to them. But in general, he did send her letters back to her. And he said that he was going to do that because he wanted to have them for safekeeping, which for me was gold. You know, yeah, no just, kidding. just wonderful. So I was very fortunate because a lot of collections don't have that back and forth. They just have the one side. So I was very fortunate in that. And I'd like to stress here too, my letter isn't, my book isn't just a collection of letters. It's a story around the letters. And I try, I try to place the letters in context of what was going on, not only with my father, but in the war in the Central Pacific at that time. And I, I think I did a pretty good job of that. We touched on a little bit. The name of the book is No Ordinary Soldier, My Father's Two Wars. There's some deep meaning in the second part. We'll get to that in a little bit. When, yes. when you got them all, when you got your hands on them, you know, were they in chronological order? Did you have to do quite a bit of work to, to put them back together? I can only imagine you said you were missing about 100. So now I got you at about 200 letters. That must have been quite an effort to, to kind of piece it all together. Well, I, yeah, I ended up with 297. And yes, the organizational effort was immense because every time I thought I had a certain order, I didn't. And I had, I had to keep shoveling them around. And sometimes you find a letter tucked into another letter. <laughs> it was, it was interesting, but um, I finally got them all together. And my very first task was I just started putting the letters in word. You know, mm -hmm. I just started typing them, typing them up, typing them up, just getting them down, you know, and, um, over the years, my mother had several requests for the letters from uh, Carlisle Barracks. I think they have a, a, a collection there in Pennsylvania of uh, uh, military letters. And she said, no way, I'm not giving these letters up. And I will eventually give them to a museum. I'm not quite ready to do that. But I, I think it is a good collection. And I, I think it, it does bear being into, into a collection where they'll be taken care of at some point in time but yeah so it was a really an organizational effort and and also in the letters there were sometimes some 
postcards tucked in. There was one V-mail or victory mail that my father had written, which he didn't write that to his wife. He wrote it to his in-laws, and it was just very cursory. And I think, again, that, that kind of just reinforces the, the, the fact that the V-mail was just a one-page sheet mm-hmm. combination envelope, and the GIs didn't care to use it because it was just too small. So he, he didn't use it very often, but it did save an enormous amount of tonnage on mail ships. And sure. they were, you know, strongly encouraged to use it, but my father didn't use it much. So, yeah, I had a tremendous organizational effort, and my research effort took the better part of eight years, not, not constantly doing that. Mm-hmm. I was doing other things, too, but... It took a long time because honestly, Brian, I didn't know anything about my father's service. All I knew is that he was in the war. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I knew. Yeah. And I knew that he was in the Army Air Corps and I knew that he had been in Hawaii. But it, I'll tell you, I, it didn't occur to me that he had survived Pearl Harbor because when you're a young person, you don't think about those things. It takes a little age and a little seasoning to realize, my goodness. My father witnessed one of the most important things in our history. And then I started realizing, you know, this is really a story here. This yeah. is really a story. Yeah. I want to, I want to come back to that. Cause that's part of that sort of second part of your journey to get to know yeah. him. And uh, you lost him when you were 18 years old. So you're right. There wasn't a long runway, so to speak of, of information that he probably bestowed upon you. And, and also at a time where he just didn't want to talk about it. So to be able right. to go back in and exactly. read the words on those, those pages probably helped when he was Island hopping. Was he, was he on jets? Was he on ships? How was he, was he on planes? How was he, do you, do you, do you know? From, I believe he was flown from Hawaii to Tarawa. But after that, I think he took landing ship transport. Well, I know he did from Tarawa to the Marshalls because that's documented. And he ended up in the Pacific. Uh, yeah. And then from uh, Kwajalein up to Saipan, I'm not really sure, but I'm guessing it was landing ship transport. I don't think it was the airplane. I just, there was just no mention made mm-hmm. of that, and I didn't find a record of it in his um, his uh, company, you know, histories. So I, I have to just kind of punt on that one. Do you do you but, know where was he in and around Iwo Jima at all? No, no. His last duty station was Saipan, and. By that time, he'd been in combat for nine months. And I guess the fact that he had been in the service prior to the bombing, by that time, you know, his number, you know, they had this ranking system. And by that time, he was they, he was ready to be reassigned stateside. So he was. So he didn't really go beyond Saipan. But um, by the time he got to Saipan, they already had the B-29 bomber. It was really kind of all over except for the shouting, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. the, the B-29 could get to Japan fairly easily. And when he was on Saipan, it was already bombing the, G- the Jimas, the, the Bonin Islands, the Iwo Jimas, the, the Chiwi Jimas, and yeah, there's a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he, he did see the major part of it. 
All right. So you've got all these letters. You're able to to start going through them. You're essentially just transcribing them. You're getting them out of handwritten content into a right. digital platform so you can work from there. I have right. to imagine the, the range of emotion that comes through you as you're, you know, you're doing hard work, but you're also, you're probably getting, are you getting caught in it? You know, as you're, oh, as you're transcribing, what, what's jumping off of the pages? Very much was I caught up in. Well, for example, my father described he and his buddy touring a submarine at Pearl Harbor. I mean, that's a pretty exciting experience for a young guy. And he described it in pretty good detail. You know, if, if you've never seen a submarine, it's nothing but valves and levers and so forth, you know, and the space is very confined. And, you know, he described it, you know, it, with pretty good detail. And it's talking about... Uh, the nature of the people on on Oahu. Now, you, you probably know this, but there was a very long presence of Asian people on Oahu from back in the, the pineapple plantation and sugar mm -hmm. plantation days. There was a big population of, well, not only Japanese, but Filipinos, Chinese, and for a guy from a town in Pennsylvania, and actually for most of the GIs, they had never seen people of other races. They've mainly seen Caucasians, maybe, a, you know, a few black people. Mm -hmm. And so that was a very interesting thing. And one letter he wrote to my mother, he, he, he included a clipping from the Honolulu newspaper. And he said, look on the back of this clipping. All the names are Jap names. So it was kind of a culture shock for, yeah, for them to be immersed in what was essentially an Asian culture there on Oahu. So that was something that, that struck him, you know, as, as interesting. And um, I don't know what else there was, there was a, Honolulu was a wild town. Let's just be honest. There were 28 army sanctioned brothels there. Now he wrote that he had no, nothing to do with that, which I actually do believe and that he wasn't much of a drinker. And I think that's true too, because my mother said he would have a beer like on Friday night, like one or two beers. That's the extent of it. Just, he wasn't a big drinker. I know he wasn't a gambler. Mm -hmm. He was raised as a strict method. His parents were strict Methodist. So, you know, I don't think he, I'm sure he didn't partake in the, of the brothels, but Honolulu was a wild town and there was plenty of opportunity there if you wanted it. My father was an excellent swimmer. So I'm sure he loved to go to the beach. I'm sure he swam. He was an excellent tennis player. So I'm sure he, he played tennis when he could. And those are the kind of recreational things that he would have taken part of there. Maybe some movies. He did enjoy movies, uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So you really got a flavor from his letters of what, the, not only what the war was like, but what, what everyday life was like for a soldier there on Oahu. And I, I enjoyed that aspect of it very much. Would he talk to her and write to her about things they were going to do and the life they were going to build when he was done and when he was back? Was that in there as well? Oh, yes, yes. They talked about children. They wanted to have children, what kind of house they might want. I can remember my father writing, I don't want to live in a small town. I'd rather live in a big city like Philadelphia or New York. And, you know, my mom was a country girl, so I'm not so sure how she took this. But uh, eventually they ended up in the suburbs. So maybe that's kind of a happy medium. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
Yeah, it sounds like it. It's interesting to hear you talk about his ability to tell these stories. And so maybe it comes as no surprise that later in your life, you know, you become an author and and, and you write books that there's something in the DNA there, uh, Liz, that must have been passed along from him to you. I agree. I, as I mentioned earlier, my father's letters were well written mm-hmm. and my mother's actually were too. So I, I think it is, it is something in the DNA. And I worked as a, you know, a lot of people, I notice when they get to be of a certain age, they decide they're going to be an artist. Mm-hmm. or a writer. But actually, I made my career as a writer. I, I got paid to write and edit. So, you know, I really am a writer. I, I worked for not only the federal government, but for several associations in, in the Washington area. And uh, I, I did that for over 20 years. So I, I am a writer. <laughs> so having that background, when you yeah. finally get access to the letters and you're able to kind of pour through them and start transcribing them, how quickly did you know, did it hit you early in the process? I really want to do something with these. I want to write something based off of these. What was that process like for you? Well, what happened there was when I started reading them and I realized how substantive they were, then I knew I had a story. Now, I first originally thought, well, this will, this will just be straight nonfiction. Just, you know, nothing, no, no creativity about it, but more or less, you know, here are letters and here's where my father was. But then, as you know, as I got into the story, I realized, no, this is really a story that needs to be told. And so I took some courses in creative writing. Uh, it's, it's, my genre is really called creative nonfiction, but my book here is a blend. It's creative nonfiction, it's history, and it's part memoir too, because it's part my story too. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoy getting into the creative aspect of it. And what I mean by that is I use metaphor, I use simile, uh, I use other uh, forms of um, speech that are, are, um, really what a fiction writer uses, but it makes it more interesting for the reader, in my opinion. All right. So we read before the letters led her to discover a shocking family secret, not only fulfilling yeah. her quest, but also revealing a story of war, love and forgiveness. What yeah. is it, Liz? Okay. I'll tell you, I'm going to talk about this in public for the first time on your podcast. Are you serious? I am serious. Because for all this time, I have felt like if I talk about this, I'm going to give away the end of my book. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to ruin the surprise for people. But at this point in time, my book's been out now for five years. And I I think I need to start talking about it. As I did my research and talked to family members, it became clear to me that my father was either gay or bisexual Mm. and that he lived a life as, as a straight man, as an accommodation that had to be made for the time. Because as you well know, our society was not very welcoming to gays or bisexual people back in the forties, fifties, and even really to the sixties. So, I don't think my father was the only man who did this. I think it happened, you know, quite a bit. And the reason I came to that conclusion, I didn't come to the conclusion lightly. 
I, I came to it through one of the quotes that my father wrote in one of his letters. He said to my mother, do you find me so unusual? There is something about me that I don't want to tell you right now. I'm paraphrasing here. Mm-hmm. Maybe someday I will. But for right now, let's just forget about it. And I asked my mother when I was going through my research, I read this to her from the letter. And I said, Mom, what do you think Dad meant by this? And by this time, my father had been dead, you know, over 30 years. And she said, I think your father may have been gay. Or she said, I think he was gay. And prior to that, my older sister, who knew him better than anybody, I'm one of four, four girls, there were four girls, my older sister knew him the best. She had said the same thing. She said, I think daddy was gay. So when you have your older sister and your mother saying this, and then this bit of evidence in the letters, you know, it's a pretty much, I think, a sure thing to say. He probably most likely was gay or bisexual. And, and just as I said, made the accommodations that were necessary for the times. Now, he always did want children. I, I know that. My mother told me that. So, you know, there was that part of, of married life that, that he enjoyed. And, you know, he, he really did care for my mother. Um, that shows in the letters, even, even if it wasn't maybe a torrid affair. You know, they had been good friends before he left uh, for the war. And um, I think that friendship endured regardless of of what else went on. And, and of course, he died very young. He died at age 51. So, uh, you know, I don't know. All I can say is they made the best of it. And I would just like to point out that there were over 40,000 gay men who served in World War II, according to the records that I have read about. There were probably many, many more. And gay men have always served in our wars. As you may know, one of George Washington's right-hand men was a gay German man. Weinsteinkopf uh, or something like that was his name. So, I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, there have always been gay people in society. And I just feel like there aren't too many World War II stories with mm-hmm. a gay angle, mm-hmm. but my story is one. And that's why I think it should, I'd like it to be well read. <laughs> a- absolutely. Uh, his service to our nation uh, is not tarnished at all by, by those personal choices. Uh, mm-hmm. If you think about what he went through and then the added burden that this must have placed on him exactly. mentally and emotionally. Exactly, uh, and, and it probably even makes you go back and read those letters with even more perspective, gratefulness, thankfulness, empathy, all of those emotions. Absolutely. Because when I was growing up, my father had a fairly bad temper mm. and he was, I mean, he really was strict. Now the strict part of it, as I've gotten older, I really appreciate that because I have standards that a lot of people don't have. And my mother was also strict. So they were on the same page in that regard. Um, 
but and I actually I think some of that comes from his strict methods upbringing. Some of it I think comes from being in the military, though. Mm-hmm. You know, he was always dressed to the nines. He was always neat and tidy. And you do learn that in the military. You know, there there are some really good things that come from being in the military in that regard. And yeah, I mean, I think his life. Once he left the military and, and, and as I say, married, I don't think he really struggled so much with temptation because, as my mother said to me, she said, I never had, there were never any strange phone calls to the house or any strange letters. She said, I really believe he put that life behind him. And I think he did, too. I, I think he made a decision. You know, I'm married now. I have children. I, you know, I just have to live this way, whether it's what I really want to do in my heart or not, it's the right thing to do for my family. And I think that's what he did. The more you peel this back, Liz, it's really, really incredible. Guys, the book is No Ordinary Soldier, My Father's Two Wars. Having heard what you just heard, this woman have the courage and the heart and the love for her family member, for her father, to speak about it uh, having only written about it before and not done a lot of public appearances speaking about it, it's really incredible. I'm so grateful that you're willing to do that and share that story because his story is an important story. Boy, I'm I'm kind of blown away by the fact that he came back, you know, married life and and like you said, just continued to serve your mother, serve your family. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. It is amazing. It's really it amazing. amazing. My, my father was a very hard worker, and anybody who came up in the depression, believe me, you were a hard worker. (laughs) That's just that generation. And I I also write a monthly column for a guy in England who's a reenactor. It's funny to us to hear reenacting of World War II, but in in Europe, they do it, of course. I don't think we want to reenact Pearl Harbor too much, but of course they have reenactments over there. And I write a monthly column for him. And I come across stories of unsung heroes from that generation and that war every month. And it is such a source of inspiration for me. And just awe, just awe that they really were the greatest generation. And my parents were part of it. And I'm just thrilled and proud of that, of that aspect. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, so many uh, families that are, are fortunate to have loved ones that did what they had to do. We, we continue to just pay the ultimate respect for what those men and women of that era did for those who didn't get to come home, you know, what they did. We're just so grateful for that incredible service before self, so much strength of purpose in those folks. When, when you wrote the book, when you put the story out there, I, I know you, you, you had to talk to family first, right? Hey, we're going to oh, write yeah. this. You had talked with your mom, you talked with your sister, but what yeah. was that reception like when, when you put it all out on paper and it became a thing that people could consume and, and read? Well, to be honest with you, I had to self-publish. I did try to get an agent or a publisher. I gave it 18 months and I said, you know, I'm going to put a time limit on this because if I don't, I'll never get the book out. And so that's what I did. And I actually had quite a few um, requests for a full manuscript or several chapters, but no takers. And I, I honestly don't think it's because my book wasn't good enough, mm-hmm. because I do think my book is good enough. In fact, as you know, it won an award. 
It won, um, it came as a, in as a finalist in the 2018 International Book Awards in the mili military history genre. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that to get an agent or a publisher, you have to know somebody. You have to be connected. It's just like so many other things in life, like acting or music or, or I don't know, so many fields. It just pays to be connected. And I really wasn't connected and galled me because I was, I'm a good writer and I had a career in writing and I couldn't get published. So it's kind of an unfortunate situation. But at any rate, I got my book out there and, um, you know, I have four and a half stars on Amazon. It's well reviewed by many people who don't know me. Of course, there's a couple people who do know me who've submitted reviews, but most of them don't know me. They're just strangers. So I think that's pretty telling that it's a pretty good book. And I, um, I have also become a speaker for the South Carolina Humanities Out Loud program. Now you have to submit uh, a videotape to them and tell them all about your presentation. And as, as I say, a tape showing you giving the, the presentation for you to be accepted into that program. And I've been accepted. So I have gone all over the state of South Carolina. I've spoken at Rotary Clubs and Kiwanis Clubs and DAR meetings. I've spoken at libraries. And I've put together a whole PowerPoint that kind of follows the war story, not so much the personal story of of my father, but the war in the Central Pacific and the, the battles that he was involved in. And it's, it's very well received. And I love giving my talks and I'm paid to give my talks. So it, it all works out well. And when I do my personal appearances, I happen to sell quite a few books. So it may not be selling so much online, but when I have a personal appearance, I sell, I've sold probably I probably sold a thousand books on my own. So that's pretty good. I yeah. think book selling is hard business. Tell us dad's name. I, I didn't even ask you at the beginning of this. You got to tell us dad's name, your dad's name. Oh, my father's name was Herb, Herb Gilmore. And so Gilmore is my maiden name. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, um, I've also found out Brian that I am a daughter of the American revolution on my father's side. All from, all from just doing all this work. In a way, yes, because I, I, I started doing some digging into my father's ancestry, and I, I have a friend who's a genealogist, and she went back, you know, to the late 1700s, and I thought, whoo, that's pretty far back. I, I didn't think my father's family went back that far, and then I was approached by a DAR member. And she said, why don't you come to a meeting? And I said, well, I'd love to, but I don't know if I'm eligible. But she, she said, well, let me, let me have what information you have. And I'll see, she, she is what's known as a registrar, registrar mm -hmm. for DAR, and she does genealogy. And lo and behold, she found not only one, but two patriots in my father's line. So he's from a long line of people who have served in the military and, uh, not my mother's side, but again, my father's side. I have a great, great grandfather who was in the Civil War. And then I have at least two ancestors that were in the revolution. So it's, it's really, really meaningful for me. It seems like, you know, having gone through this process and, and just 
you know, consuming all these things and doing all this research. Uh, and, and it's probably always been there, but just continue to con- constantly unlock just this deep sense of patriotism in you, of, of love of country. If you've got family members that take all the way back to those important founding days and months and years, that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's pretty incredible. Again, the name of the book is No Ordinary Soldier, My Father's Two Wars. Uh, that second half, so much deep meaning inside of that. His name was Herb Gilmore. She's Liz Gilmore Williams. No regrets throughout this entire process, right? Oh, not at all. Oh, it's been the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. Honestly, Brian, it has been. It's incredible. Yeah. Where where can folks go to, to find information? We obviously want them to go pick the book up. Guys, even just hearing the story today, you, you got to get to be able to read it and really hear it feel it, read it, come to life. So where can they find all that? Well, of course, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. And if you go to my uh, webpage, which is NoOrdinarySoldier.com, you can read more about the book. You can see some uh, really interesting photos that belong to my father of the era, of the World War II era. And uh, you can click on a link there. That'll take you right to those selling pages. So it's an easy thing to do. <laughs> She says the book is part creative nonfiction history and memoir. And that's what happens in No Ordinary Soldier. Liz, thank you so much for sharing your story with our listeners, for all that your family has done throughout the history of our nation, for all that your father did on behalf of the United States of America. Know that we are grateful for that. And thank you so much for sharing this incredibly powerful story. It's been a pleasure. I'm peeling the layers back as we're talking. I'm like, this is just an amazing, incredible story. Liz, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Brian. She's Liz Williams. I'm Brian Jodis. This has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.